Welcome to Opening Dharma Access, Listening to BIPOC Teachers, a podcast where we hear stories from BIPOC teachers about their dharma experiences and practice, and how these inform the ways they are sharing the dharma today. I am Karma Yeshe Chijan, your host for this episode. Joining me today is Dunze Jambal Norbu. Dunze La is the son of Zikur Kontru Rinpoche and Elizabeth Matis Namgyal. He is also Rinpoche's Dharma heir in the Mangala Shri Bhutti community. Today, he shares with us ways he incorporates the spectrum of experience into his Dharma practice and teaching. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me today. It's my pleasure to welcome you, Densila. Will you begin with introducing yourself to our listeners and describing your very unique upbringing in the Dharma? Oh, yes. My name is Jampal Norbu Namgyal. I'm a teacher in the Mangala Shributi Sangha of Vajrayana Tibetan Buddhism in the Longchen Nintik lineage. And my teacher is Zigar Kong Trimpache, who is also my father. And yes, I've been involved with Tibetan Buddhism for my entire life. And I have been teaching Tibetan Buddhism for the past 15 years or so. I made the decision to pursue a life of practice after graduating from high school and attended a institute in northern India, a Shedra group, in order to pursue my education in Dharma studies and language and uh, philosophy and translation. That's really how my life has been going for the past decade or so. Yes, I, I'm sure there's more to say, but that's a fair introduction. How would you say that you identify racially, ethnically, and any other categories of social location that are of importance to you right now? Yes. So my father is a Tibetan. And my mother is, I suppose, Slavic Jewish, American. Her family's been in the U.S. for a number of generations. And uh, I personally identify more as mixed. I think the Tibetan aspect is a little more relevant considering my line of work, so to speak, or in the context of Tibetan Buddhism. But at the same time, my Life in America and being in the Western world is possibly more relevant to interacting with people in the United States and the Western world. So uh, I, I find myself ethnically ambiguous, even to myself. And it's a practice as well, because the whole idea of a set or fixed identity in Tibetan Buddhism is really something we steer away from through the practice. Not that it's good to have a healthy sense of identity or to um, somehow push that to the side, but it is not really relevant to a spiritual path in that particular sense. Can you speak a little to what it's like to navigate that ambiguity as a practice and as a lived experience? Oh, yeah. For myself, I don't honestly think that the racial element of my genealogy uh, is really the point uh, within my practice. I think that is something I could 
develop or I could develop an identity around. But honestly, it feels more like a cultural thing to me. It feels more culturally relevant where I don't feel the pull between either being Slavic or Jewish or, or Tibetan per se. I feel more of a cultural pull between East and West, between tradition and modernity. That's not necessarily a genetic thing or a biological thing that's more of a you know, human construct. I mean, most uh, ideas along those lines are human constructs, but that seems to be the most relevant aspect in my life. And so my uh, practice, as it were, is even to let go of the idea of being Tibetan in a particular sense and to be more of a Buddhist practitioner because that is only my temporary identity for this lifetime and that'll probably get reshuffled in the future. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I I find the, the question around identity uh, to be more cultural for myself uh, in relation to Dharma practice. Can you say a little more about that? dichotomy between tradition and modernity as you experience it? Well, it's it's an interesting dichotomy for sure, because I I am Buddhist, but that doesn't necessarily describe what my approach to life is or my approach to meditation practice is, because there are many forms of Buddhism in the world. And uh, many contemporary forms, which I suppose in the American zeitgeist tend to be a little less formalized. They have more to do with being your true you kind of thing, or uh, meditating in order to regulate blood pressure or uh, decrease stress or something like that. And there's not so much emphasis on having a tanka or or an image of the Buddha in, in a shrine room and you know, doing prostrations to that image or to uh, take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and stuff like that. And this is kind of the modern idea of being Buddhist. And growing up with a lot of uh, my contemporaries or my peers, I have seen that approach start out where you know, there's interest in Buddhism, there's interest in these teachings on compassion and nonviolence and eating vegetarian and stuff like that. But then kind of shying away from anything more quote unquote religious, which can be received in a number of different ways. I feel that the Western world tends to veer away from organized religion, or at least in, in the modern sense. After all, a lot of American culture comes from people leaving Europe in order to practice a spiritual faith away from any kind of establishment. And so it's much more individualistic in that approach. I feel there's a, a long-standing tradition of not buying into tradition in the United States. So the dichotomy of being born into a Tibetan Buddhist family in a more traditional practice, and then deciding to take that on for myself, 
I feel the dichotomy more in translating the benefits of really following a path fully without nitpicking at it or personalizing it. And at the same time, translating that into the Western zeitgeist, where it's not something to be avoided, but really showing where we do tend to put our faith, where we do tend to put our trust and our efforts and our dedication and devotion and the small traditions that we don't think of as traditions in the Western world, but still reveal a great deal about our internal state of mind and to mm, dissolve the misconception around traditional Buddhism. I'm curious if there's anything in particular that you found supportive or not supportive. Not unsupportive, per se. I think that if anything wasn't supportive, it was lack of context through my classmates growing up or my friends, not having a whole lot of context for how other people followed a spiritual path or how other people encountered these things. I recall many times when someone asked me, so what about your family? What do you do in your Buddhist household? What do you do in your kind of traditional Tibetan Buddhist household? And I couldn't honestly answer because I had no idea how it was different from any other household. I didn't know what, what we did was unique by any means. And I don't think it was until my teens that I really started teasing that out. You know, meditation is just not something that everyone does or being somewhat formal in some situations or relaxed in other situations, this sense of you know, service to other people to act with compassion for the benefit of beings, you know, the foundations of bodhicitta, to act with equanimity, loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. These aren't just givens in the world. It's not something that everyone feels is necessary in their life. That was a shock at times uh, because it seems so fundamental to me. My teacher, my father, Zigar Kongshrimbache, came to the United States when I was a baby and began by teaching at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, and very slowly established a sangha, a following of Dharma students at that time. And it was very small, like five, ten people or so, and now we're, uh, we're much larger than that. But it didn't seem like such a big deal at the time, but his teacher had uh, given him some instructions that it would be nice. It would be <laughs> recommended if I could follow in his footsteps. But I didn't know any of that. He didn't tell me that. And so I maybe grew up with the assumption that I might do that. But he he dissolved that assumption for me by saying, you know, you can't just assume that you're going to be a teacher, or you can't assume that you're going to live a life of Dharma practice and not actually practice and not actually make, you know, a personal commitment to this path. You know, you're raised as a Buddhist, you want to be a Buddhist, but you know, not everyone actually pursues Dharma practice, even when they say that they're Buddhist. If you want that, then you have to really work for it. You have to make that decision. And then halfway through high school, he 
brought up the opportunity that I could go to northern India and I could study through this four-year intensive, which turned out being a five-year intensive in uh, Tibetan philosophy and language and translation and so on. And I, I had some time to think about it, and I decided that's what I want to do. I, I could go to college. I could take the more academic route. I could mm. you know, pursue some other career. But nothing honestly appealed to me in the same way. And if anything, I would have liked to be a philosopher or a writer or, or something along those lines. But there was nothing that particularly inspired me. All my interest was in that direction. So I made that choice that that's what I'm going to do. And I'm very happy that I made that decision. And I still get to write and, and support myself and be a philosopher, <laughs> also a Buddhist practitioner. And uh, so that's the, that's the point where I really made the choice to take this on as my life path. And I had no idea that his teacher had recommended that I follow in his footsteps. I only found that out uh, years later. Who was his teacher? My father's teacher, uh, my teacher's teacher, uh, is Dugo Kensurimbache. My goodness, that's quite a recommendation. Yeah, one of the great teachers in the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. I'm interested to hear about your mother's take on all of this and how much her role has influenced you. Well, uh, honestly, she seemed to be the the most hardcore practitioner, honestly. <laughs> For a, a great deal of time, she was in meditative retreat on a mountain mm. nearby the house. She would come and visit sometimes. I, I could go up and visit her as well when I was younger. But I was also a, a very independent child, so I would be more likely to run away from home and, and do my own thing, not necessarily hang around my parents. So in some ways, that provided them a certain amount of leisure to practice and to do meditative retreats. And yeah, she was, she was fully on board for that and a very dedicated practitioner herself. She did, like I think, it's seven years of meditative retreat. Wonderful. How old were you during that time? I think I was maybe 10 to 17, somewhere in that line. And she would always get worried, like, oh, no, like, am I not you know, spending enough time at home? Am I not you know, doing enough of this? I'm like, no, just go back to the mountain. I, I got this. <laughs> would you say that your experiences navigating all of the different cultural elements has had an impact on how you teach now, especially for students from the Black or Indigenous or people of color communities? For sure. I think that I am very much of the contemporary upbringing of my generation, the millennial generation. I don't think you can totally grow up as a millennial in America for the past however years and uh, and not be a bit, I don't know, <laughs> uh, categorized or mm. affected in, in a particular way if not practically, then just through language and uh, mm. how culture shapes the different generations of, of people. So I definitely feel a difference between myself and maybe older generations of Americans and older generations of Buddhist teachers as well. But at the same time, the, the tradition that gets passed down, that's, that's timeless, in my opinion. Mm. And I don't see any need to change that or manipulate that or, or make that more personalized. 
However, there is some translation that needs to be done. There is definitely some cultural generational translation, mm. which does appeal more to you know, the time period that, that we live in now. But at the same time, meditation is not just about lowering your blood pressure, and at least not in my case. Uh, it has more to do with working with the seeds of negative emotions, the cause and conditions for suffering, and you know, the kleshas, the five negative emotions that we speak about of attachment, aggression, stubborn stupidity, jealousy, and pride, emotional neurosis, so to speak. You can have a whole bunch of that attached to your identity, you know, whatever, whatever you identify as. I would not put down or, or say that we need to erase or dispose of identity per se. We do tend to have a lot of negative emotions or neurosis attached to our identities, whether that is cultural, whether that is uh, genetic, racial, or according to our country, our nationality. There can be so many neurosis built into that. And letting go of the attachment to those things, not necessarily rejecting them, uh, because that's that's a different extreme. Not being super attached, but not also rejecting, but being kind of open and accepting and comfortable with the fluidity and the dynamics of life without succumbing to those attachments or or rejection. That's really where we find a great deal of freedom. And as a mixed a person of mixed heritage, that's very front and center for me, because I could definitely zero in on one cultural identity or zero in on another cultural identity. And sometimes it's it varies, you know, which identity or part of myself or idea of myself I, I zoom in on. For instance, I generally identify very strongly with Tibetan culture because it's just what I'm engaged with all the time. But my great-grandparents on my mother's side were from Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And the conflict in Ukraine has certainly brought up some interesting points for me and how I think about myself. That would be my own internal processing. And do I take that on as a neurosis or do I want to take that on as kind of a healthy part of this who I am in this lifetime? For any sense of self, I would want to at least direct that in a positive sense to connect, to generate compassion and bodhicitta, and not to really have it be about me. Mm. That's a bit of a cultural trap. If there's kind of a sudden interest in, in one culture or you know a movie comes out that's kind of promoting one kind of culture, or like one 16th Japanese and an awesome samurai movie comes out, then all of a sudden you're all about the, the samurai in your genealogy. <laughs> No, that's kind of how we look for a certain amount of validation. But I, I wouldn't say that that's really necessary. Most important is to have a healthy sense of our own mind without any kind of great attachment or rejection, and then to really appreciate our cultural background, to not denigrate it or push it away, but to be fully embracing of all our cultural aspects, even if they seem to be contradictory, mm. to say, you know, these conditions came together and here I am. And I can at least have respect and some critical intelligence around these factors that brought me into the world. You know, I have felt 
a little out of place in in several different dharma environments um but i have felt somewhat out of place because i've been tibetan in a room full of i suppose white americans or i've felt very out of place in a room full of tibetans because i am half american or uh, or half non-tibetan slavic you can feel out of place in in a lot of different environments it's not going to be a guarantee that's something that dharma centers themselves really have to work with what would you suggest for communities who want to be more supportive for people with experiences similar to your own or other BIPOC practitioners in general? That sense of openness, that sense of putting yourself in someone else's shoes, Tonglen practice, as it is in the Lojong teachings on mind training, the exchanging of yourself and other, kind of take on the position of others and send your, your qualities, your assets, your goodness to them. That's something that, you know, it's a practice and we wouldn't be in these situations if we weren't trying to practice. And sometimes we will not succeed. Then some people do feel left out just by the situation or because someone is not reflecting uh, that ideal or reflecting that quality of practice in themselves. All I can say is that, you know, it's, it's a difficult path to follow. And that if a community is not really reflecting those values, it is not really about the path. It's really about the ongoing struggle of practitioners, all practitioners, to overcome these habits, uh, habitual behavior and whatever neurosis is kind of subtly influencing them. Again, I think Dharma practice is for everyone. It's really meant for everyone. And there's no cultural boundary, there's no social boundary, there's no ethnic boundary that really makes these teachings inaccessible. And if it seems that way, then it's someone getting caught up in in the identity or their personal preferences, which is not really what the path of Dharma is about. It's about letting go of any kind of neurotic attachment to preferences, if anything. There, There will always be other communities. Uh, there will always be other places to practice, practice online, practice in, in different places or different Dharma centers. <laughs> I suppose my, my great advice for anyone is find, find one person who, who you connect with. It doesn't have to be a community. Just find one person who you connect with. Find a spiritual friend who you connect with. Find, you know, that Dharma teacher who you connect with and, and really hone in on on the meaning of practice personally, rather than you know, thinking about the community. There's the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And you could somewhat think of the teacher as the guide, as the Buddha, or the person who is kind of bringing you on onto the path. And, uh, and then the Dharma kind of being the content or the, the teachings and the practice. And then there's the Sangha, the Sangha's community and the community of support. But Sangha doesn't always have to be you know, the literal people in the room with you. It doesn't always have to be, you know, the reflection of the demographic where you live, so to speak. It's really any kind of community that gives you support. It's the, the community of bodhisattvas who have, you know, brought these teachings to us. It's not like we really have to base everything off the immediate members of a meditation community. And, you know, hopefully that does change. Hopefully connections are made. But mostly it's about the Dharma. 
And you know, even in the most traditional centers, we put the Dharma above even images of the Buddha, because it is really the Dharma which is the most benefit. It is the Dharma that serves the most, more than the Buddha, more than the Sangha. So the benefit of the teachings, the benefit of the practice, that's really where it's at. And if connection with the Sangha is not quite there yet, that is not a problem. That comes with time or that comes with you know, the right kind of merit or following this path for for some time. So you know, there's kind of a, a nice feeling of being supported by a community and being supported by uh, other fellow practitioners and that social contact. And you know, that's something that as uh, Americans, we really like that social contact. We really like to know that, you know, we got a community behind us. You know, I see the importance of that more and more this living here and during the COVID times, how important that is to a Dharma community. But personally, more than that, it's the Dharma. It's definitely the Dharma that keeps that personal integrity, that keeps that sanity, regardless of, of what happens. So if you really go for the Dharma, you can't go wrong. Is there anything more you'd like to share with us? You know, I was just thinking of something around uh, the subject of personal bias. I was thinking of how that applies specifically within my life. And I kind of miss the term, honestly, examining personal biases, because it's it seems like a very Buddhist thing to do, to examine where am I biased? You know, what do I hold on to? What do I lean away from? What do I fear? What am I attached to? We're not always aware of our own personal bias. <laughs> and, uh, it, it can somehow be karmic, just like built into us, uh, or it can be cultural, something that's learned over time. I don't know which one this is particularly, but fear of snakes and spiders. It's often one or the other. Fear of snakes is a huge fear in India because they have poisonous snakes. And maybe there's some you know associations with snakes as deities and so on, but a lot of people are just terrified of snakes. I haven't seen that kind of widespread fear mm. over here uh, in the United States, but there's a lot of fear of spiders. And so when me and my friends, we go to India and we see the spiders that they have over there and huge, huge spiders, it's terrifying. And then if someone from India comes over here or some of my friends have come over here and they see like a garden snake or just any kind of snake that's just, you know, out in the grass, because we don't have that many poisonous snakes here, I suppose. We do have some very poisonous snakes, but not as many. Then they get totally freaked out by a garden snake. You know, it can't do anything. It just slithers. And uh, and I have no problem with snakes. Letting go of the fear around spiders, letting go of the, the knee-jerk reaction to spiders is a kind of examining my personal bias that I obviously like snakes more than spiders. I just appreciated that when you know, we talked about personal biases in in Dharma centers or just in practice in general, because it's something that we don't often do. You know, we take it for granted that you know, I'm a kind person, I'm a compassionate person, that I rejoice in the well-being of others. But it's really that equanimity 
equanimity is one of the key points in the four measurable practices uh, of Buddhism, the kind of foundation of bodhicitta practice. Uh, they're called the four measurables because they have a measurable benefit and they can you know, take you an immeasurable distance on the Dharma path. And the teachings on equanimity are really just so profound and so vital to any kind of sustainable spiritual growth. Because if we limit our compassion by having preferences towards people we like and then discriminating against people we don't like on, on any basis, on their appearance, on our relationship with them, on our dynamic, if like our families don't get along, that kind of thing. It's really going to be a detriment to our own personal growth. It's a disservice to ourself. It's a disservice to the world. So developing equanimity, not saying everyone's the same, not not equity, I suppose, but equanimity in, in the spiritual sense, not just saying everyone's the same, but holding that universal quality of a sentient being within your heart. Obviously, you wouldn't treat your wife the way same way you treat your father or something like that, or different friends, you treat them differently. So it's not about sameness. It's about equanimity, this extending the compassion to all beings, not being preferential, not giving into the knee-jerk reaction of personal biases. And uh, same with yeah, compassion, loving kindness, sympathetic joy. I think that's a huge part of Dharma practice. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed that when I had more conversations with friends about you know, what are my personal biases and exploring that and seeing that, oh yeah, I guess I do you know, have this bias or I do have this bias. Not that I have to somehow overcompensate or how do I say virtue signal along those lines, but to really genuinely look at myself and look at where that's coming from. Dharma practice is mostly internal, but the external benefits, the external effects of that are tremendous. Mm -hmm. And I really think that only from within lasting change can come. Any kind of apparent change or any kind of perceived change is not genuinely rooted in our own understanding of ourselves or our own experience of our own mind. That's not sustainable. It's just going to spike and then peter out. It's going to be the fashion of the week, something like that. Now, that's, again, why I, I really focus on Dharma as the chief connection to the three jewels, to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, because it's really from that personal connection that we see the benefits and our inspiration can grow from there and be supported from there. Yeah, I, I think that that's a, a great reflection. It's not just spiritual. It's also philosophical. It's internal. It's something that you can see for yourself if you self-reflect. All meditation has to come from self-reflection or all genuine change has to come from self-reflection first. Without self-reflection, we don't even have the basis for a Buddhist path. Thank you so much, Jampala, for joining us today. It's been such a delight talking to you. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Yeshe. Thank you. This has been Karma Yeshe Chujan for Opening Dharma Access with Jampal Norbu Namgyal sharing their Dharma experience as a BIPOC teacher. Reverend Leanne Shutt and Kyra Jewel Lingo will be sharing their discussions with more teachers in the coming months. Look for new episodes on the first Tuesday of every month. In between episodes, we'll also share a meditation, mindfulness practice, chant, 
or another form of practice from our guests with you. Come back to check that out and keep on listening to our BIPOC teachers. Be sure to subscribe for notifications and rate and review the podcast to help us spread the word. Check the episode notes for resources and email us at suddenleap.a2z at gmail.com with any questions. Let's open Dharma access to all beings.